Well, hi, this is Totally Fantastic Title, or we can shorten that to TFT. I'm Krista Wallace. Thanks to listener John, I fixed an editing mistake in episode 12. I didn't want to leave a mistake there for all eternity, so if you want, you can download the corrected version of episode 12. Sunny days, oh, sunny, sunny, sunny days. Ain't nothing better in the world you know than lying in the sun with your radio. Hehe, <laughs> Lighthouse, 1972. Great song for the summer. Went for a walk this morning, and by the time I got home, that was a song that was going through my head. So I actually don't like lying in the sun. I like listening to the radio, but I'm not a lie out in the sun person. I'm a very much uh, sit in the shade person or stay in the house person. I figure if Matt and I ever go on a vacation to someplace tropical, he'll be out on the beach and swimming and I'll be in the bar. Days like this always take me back to my childhood when when we used to hop in the car with the neighbors across the lane. They had one of those big old boat cars and of course it was before seat belts were mandatory before most cars even had seat belts and we'd drive up to the lake it's mountain fed lake so it's glacier cold <laughs> and we would hang out at the lake all day and then tumble all back in the car and head home at the end of the day after stopping at the Fern Crescent drive-in for a uh, ice cream cone um so every time I can smell vinyl, that, that smell of the hot vinyl of the car and the neighbor, the, the woman who was driving was a smoker. So it was the, it was the hot vinyl and the, the cigarette smoke. And I can, I, it, every time I smell something like that, it takes me back. You know, you know what that's like when you, when there's something that you, some smell that just attacks you and, and you're like taken right back to some specific moment. And, and songs do that for me too. So the, the songs that were big hits, I remember at that time were like, hi, 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 beautiful Sunday, you know. And the other one was um, sweet, sweet city woman, you know, with the great banjo. Love that. Sweet City Woman by the Stampeders and Sweet City Woman was 1971. I'm looking all this stuff up. Uh, Beautiful Sunday by Daniel Boone. <laughs> that was also from 1972. I just looked that up. What a what a great year for summer songs. That's what these these hot summer days make me think about. All of that stuff. But that's enough of that. You actually came here for something else altogether. Last week, Kier's medallion kind of came to life in a rather surprising sort of a way, and she escaped from a nasty situation, but we're not quite sure where she's ended up. So we'll take you back there right now to Chapter 13. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace Chapter 13 Mystified Mage 
Jeskelin lowered his hand. He had been poised with a particularly devastating spell and stopped himself just in time to avoid frying Kier. The others rushed toward her, but he held back. Her hair, disheveled like a tumbleweed, was wet and plastered to the side of her face. In the firelight, her eyes showed terror, yet something else, too, like a buck awaiting the final arrow. Goddess Helky, but she was a frightful mess. Fennel stepped aside and puked. There was no sign of a horse. There had been no sound of her approach. Kier could hardly move at all, let alone walk. It was as if she had appeared out of nowhere at all. Was he the only one who had felt the tremor? While the others asked what had befallen her and where she had been, Jeskelin couldn't help but think, How did you get here? Derry recovered right away and started giving orders, which the others hurried to carry out. I'm going to lift you, Kier, and it's going to hurt. She did not respond, but growled like a wounded dog as he picked her up as gently as he could and carried her over to her blankets. He laid her down as carefully as if she were an infant, and indeed, as soon as he'd placed her, she let go all she must have been withholding all that endless day. Sobs spewed out in gushes. Her body shook, and Derry did the only thing he knew to do. He placed his hand gently on her hair and caressed it, the way he used to do with Amber or Lily when his little sisters needed comforting. Derry glanced up at the others. They were sitting or standing, looking away. At length her sobs subsided. Derry waited a time, letting her know he was there, not abandoning her, but neither pressuring her. Finally he whispered, "'I'd like to tend you now, may I?' She nodded. Janik tossed some more fuel on the fire, then came and crouched nearby, watching Kier with eyes like the firelight. Duskelin, Fennel, stay on hand to assist me,' Derry said. "'Janik, go lie down, now. There will be no questions tonight,' he added unequivocally. Derry plied his trade long into the night, checking for broken bones, cleaning still-wet blood, stitching, bandaging— Lumps and bruises disfigured her face. Her right eye was swollen and blackened. Her lip was doubled. A bulge on the left side of her head was a deep shade of purple, and a gash on her right cheek oozed fluid. Her back, Garin's fire, her back was a bloody pudding of lacerations. Kier was uncomplaining, apart from a few uncontrollable winces. It was as if nothing he could do came close to reliving what she'd gone through that day. And although she was in bad shape, he thanked Aidan repeatedly that she was back. She spoke only five words. Just don't touch the gem. Fennel couldn't watch as Derry physicked Kier. He did as Derry asked, but found ways to keep his eyes averted. The elf felt ashamed. What had she gone through all day, and he didn't have the strength to look? Fennel saw the look of grim determination on Derry's face and wondered what else the captain was hiding. And there was Janik over there, staring up at the stars and staying out of it altogether. Without a thought, Fennel stepped over to the dwarf. If your problems are her fault, who's to blame for hers? Long after Derry had gone to bed and Fennel had taken watch, Jeskelin could not sleep. Kier's reappearance had stunned him. He was frustrated at his inability to explain it. There was a spell, a powerful one. He had felt its tremor, and he still felt the vestiges of its energy. 
The only one he could think of that remotely fit these circumstances was the gate spell, but it had two rules. Either the wizard had to be able to see his or her target location, or he or she had to visualize it accurately from a memory of being there before. Who in Ronav's band of rogues was a strong enough wizard to have mastered a spell that he, Jeskelen Aboldaren, a highly trained battle mage, hadn't nearly the power to learn? And even so, why would this person choose to release the prisoner right from under the chief's thumb? And how? How could he know where her friends were? Unless... Maybe the mage who teleported her also had a locator spell. It was the only explanation he could think of. Yet, if Ronav had such a powerful wizard working for him, we could be in trouble. Puzzled, he considered the medallion around her neck. It radiated magic like a fading perfume. At the very least, her medallion explained the faint smell of magic Jeskelen had detected on her all along. He finally slept, but not before he heard Travile saying that there was one in their party who was not what he seemed. Or she. Ronav fled from the hall amid the shrieks and cries and plunged into the darkness of the passageway. He had to get to his room where he'd find comfort, relief from the panic into which he was descending. Once he had found himself again, he would think about what to say to Golgothar. Torches were few and far between in these tunnels, supplies scarce in these times of preparation. As the light of one died out behind, he had to dash a few paces in pitch black before the dim glow of the next torch gave assurance that he was still alive. He gulped in the light as it intensified and glanced nervously around, watching for those horrible creatures with the beady eyes that liked to sneak up on people in the dark and bite and sting. The mere thought of darkness brought back all too vivid memories of the time he'd spent in Dregor's dungeon. He had never been afraid of the dark before then. He'd been lucky. Lord Dregor did not often dole out second chances. But Ronav had provided information that proved to be useful in the fall of Eckert City, thanks to his previous relations with Kian and Valraker, and Dregor had conceded a need for informers and suppliers who could operate within enemy territories. He watched his feet carefully to avoid tripping over the few rocks that jutted out of the stone floor. The creators of the inner mountain hideout had been unable to smooth down every sharp edge, some rocks were more stubborn than others. Or perhaps they just didn't have time to complete the project before that particular tribe of dwarves was attacked and wiped out by Dregor's army of orcs and goblins. But that was before Ronav's time. Dregor had done significant damage to these duchies further south in previous centuries, but since the ascendancy of Cian Barthelon his efforts had been thwarted. His lordship had had plenty of time to regroup, and now, three years past the fall of Eckert, he was gathering his forces to begin the move south again. Ronav cursed Simon for getting himself killed and slapped his hand on the wall to emphasize it. Without the goods and the information, the young fool's journey had been for naught. What did that damned girl know of Simon's business? And what had she done with his armlet? She said she had left it in shale. His footsteps slowed in despair. That device was vital to his plan. It had been extremely expensive. Damn it! It wasn't fair that Kian Barthelon had risen to such power and he had not. Kian was damned good with a sword, but Ronav was clever, so why had Kian gained power and he had not? And now he had had a taste of such power and respect, though on a much more limited scale and at a large price. 
He wanted more, but he needed that armband if he were to succeed to Kean's throne, and beyond, a device to eliminate fear. Ronev stumbled blindly past the openings that led into the kitchens, the meeting room, and the on-duty guard's office. Just past the point where the tunnel began to make its descent into the caverns below, he veered off with a gasp of relief into the well-lit passage on the right— his passage. He was the chief. He deserved some extra light to guide him to his own quarters. The gloriously bright and soundless tunnel was far away from the screams and cries of the men he had left behind. The downward slope he left only served to remind him that there was an empty cell far below that ought to have been occupied by a young snippet of a girl who was far too big for the breeches she wore. Mouthy bitch. She had to be some kind of witch. That was all there was to it. Where the hell had she got to, and what the hell was he going to tell Golgothar? Grabbing the candle from the bracket outside his room, he held it up to the burning ember of the torch that hung across the hall until its own tiny flame flared. Then he fumbled with the latch on his door. He burst into the room and quickly lit every candle and lamp he could find, everything that could eliminate darkness and shadow and the demons that accompanied them. He built a fire in the grate to suck the chill out of the cold stone walls and floor. Then, with quivering hands, he poured himself a drink of the pale yellow liquid that never failed to incinerate his nerves. Desperately, he leaned down and licked up the trickle that had escaped when the trembling bottle had missed the cup. Setting the bottle back on the table, he took a deep breath before turning to move into his wooden armchair. He gasped in shock and let the cup fall from his hand. The precious fluid spread into the cracks and disappeared into the shiny floor. But he had forgotten it already. A pair of tall black boots, crossed at the ankles, rested on his footstool. Attached to them was a pair of long legs in black trousers, above which was a torso, hands clasped on its trim midriff, as its elbows rested comfortably on the arms of Ronav's chair. His face, its unnatural pallor highlighted by the contrasting dark hair, was all innocence. "'You seem surprised to see me,' he said, a puff of heliotrope wafting from him. "'Golgothar!' Ronav spurted. "'You're early!' "'Why, whatever is the matter, Ronav?' His concern was certainly feigned. "'You seem all in a tizzy,' he gestured, inviting the shaken man to sit in his own other, less appealing armchair." "'Nothing,' Ronav said unconvincingly, sitting in the chair and crossing his legs with an attempt at nonchalance. "'Nothing is the matter. Everything is perfectly under control.' A silence ensued, relaxing for one man, disquieting for the other, though he tried admirably to regain the composure he had not actually felt since just before Kier Halliden had opened her mouth for the first time. "'What does a man have to do to get a drink around here?' Golgothar said, startling Ronav again. Golgothar could have produced his own beverage with a snap of his fingers if he so chose, but Ronav didn't remind him. The last drop of liquor from that bottle fell into Golgothar's cup, leaving none for Ronav. But he dared not say a word aloud. He would have to fetch more tomorrow. Now, how fares this latest scheme of yours? The wizard, or whatever he was, asked in a tone that suggested he already knew the answer. Ronav said nothing. He hadn't had time to prepare a speech. "'Well, I will tell you what I have already surmised,' Golgothar continued. "'Since you don't seem to have found the courage to tell me yourself, you have not been successful in your venture.' Ronav stared at him. 
You should not wonder that I have guessed it, which I see that I have. You see, if the bird were in hand, you would have no reason to be so distressed at my early arrival. I had her, sir. She was here, up in my hall. Con brought her in this evening. And you lost her again already, so soon. It wasn't... She... He blubbered. I, I had her. And during her brief visit, did you manage to collect the information as you promised? Ronab faltered. He had no news that would gain himself favour with Golgothar, and certainly not with Lord Dregor himself. Just tell me, Ronav, I can find out quite as easily from someone else if I so choose. The fact is that I'm enjoying my drink and I'm quite comfortably seated. Besides, you give me such delight with your company that I hesitate to leave. But I will if I have to. And Dregor doesn't like to get stories that aren't from the horse's mouth, as it were. You are the horse. Speak, my good fellow. Ronav sighed. I had her he said again, but this time he was just tired. Con and a few others took her this morning from the place where she was camped with the rest of Valraker's men. I asked her some questions. Things became a little heated. <clears throat> Golgothar snorted. What did she tell you? Ronav squirmed. Did she give you any answers at all? Golgothar pressed him. What reason did she give for killing your man in the village? She told me some cocked-up story about him insulting her, he blurted. It was nonsense. She was completely uncooperative. She refused to speak about what she's doing for Valraker, where they are headed, what their instructions are. I tried everything in my power to make her talk. I was patient with her and polite. I complimented her as any man would do to a beautiful woman, only he would expect to be treated with more respect in return. I was forceful when that got me nowhere. Did you beat her? Yes, beat her, even flogged her. Well, Con did. He deserved it. She deluded him for so long. And still it produced no results. Ronav was oblivious to the amused yet curious expression on his superior's face. None whatsoever. She had an amulet of some kind. Con touched it, and it flared up, and he was burned to death. Ronav had reached shrieking pitch. He hesitated. Then she disappeared. Silence. Disappeared? Yes. Just vanished into thin air. Golgothar's voice was quiet. Yes, Ronav insisted. Vanished like a bleeding Cimmerian. My men looked everywhere. She was practically immobile. There was no way she could have run. I don't know what happened to her. There, it was out. He had now but to wait to learn what his fate would be. And you say she had an amulet? Yes, some trinket in her pocket. I didn't see it very well. Silence. Golgothar chewed on his tongue. You do know that I shall have to report this to his lordship. Ronav fell to his knees. He made no effort to mask the shaking whine in his voice. Please, Golgothar, give me another chance. It wasn't my fault. She just disappeared. What was I to do? I can find her again. We'll tie her up next time. I'll find out everything you want me to. That is what you said last time. You promised that you would take full responsibility for this girl, this child, you said, if I did not tell Dregor about her. You wanted to take care of it, capture her, find out all you could, so that you could gain instant gratification from him with your prowess as an agent. You have failed, Ronav. 
Ronav shrank as he nodded. He withered into a heap on the cold floor. "'I can't just let this go,' the wizard continued. "'Young girls who go around vanishing into thin air are, I am certain, of some interest to my Lord Dregor. Whether or not the rest of the information that you failed to obtain is important, that much I have to share with him.' Ronav nodded wordlessly. "'Now, you say she had an amulet?' Golgothar repeated. Ronav nodded again. It had a gem in the centre. He was exhausted. He shrank beneath Golgothar's contemptuous smirk, which confirmed his self-analysis as a snivelling lump. Golgothar rose. He shook his head. A girl! <laughs> he chuckled. Did you find out her name, at least? Kier Halladin. Ronav spit the name out as if it were bad fish on his tongue. I am now going to report this to his lordship. I will return shortly. With that, Golgothar nodded and was gone, into thin air. Ronav snapped. There was altogether too much vanishing going on today. He let out a sob. Lamp in hand, he burst from his room and fled up the passageway to fetch some more of his precious liquid. He knew he didn't have much time before Dregor's lieutenant would return to take him away. He felt his throat constrict with terror. He tried to breathe and calm himself so he would not appear the fool in front of his men again. Damn that girl! This was all her fault. She had stood there so coolly in front of him, making sarcastic comments, refusing to answer to him. If ever I find her, I will kill her for what she has done to me. He repelled the recognition that he hated her because she showed so much more courage than he had ever felt in his life. He stalked into the office where four men sat at the table, visibly shaken, staring into their cups. No words passed between them. They hardly noticed when their chief availed himself of a full bottle and left the room. Ronav opened the bottle immediately and guzzled from it, leaning against the outside of the office door. He dreaded returning to his room, but knew he must. Golgothar would find him no matter where he was, and he would far rather be taken from there, where it wouldn't be witnessed by anyone. Bad enough that they had seen him cower behind his chair as Con burned. It would be worse if they saw him quake, as Golgothar made him go through that awful shimmering doorway into Dregor's vast, shiny obsidian hall— just not the dungeon again, please. He took another draft to stop the trembling. Placing one foot in front of the other, he made it back to his room. His hand trembled on the door handle for an eternity before he managed to forget why he was afraid to open it. Only then could he turn the handle. Empty. Golgothar was nowhere in sight and suddenly Ronav wished that he had been there, sitting patiently in his armchair, with that smirk on his frighteningly intelligent face and that ever-present glint in his eye. Ronav hated him and feared him because of what he knew he was capable of, and even more so because of what he imagined him to be capable of. Ronav wished the wizard had been there to greet him upon his return, because now he'd have to wait. More than two hours later, Ronav lay sprawled on his cot in the corner. Many of the candles had burned themselves out, and the fire was low. The two-thirds of the bottle he had consumed resigned him to his inevitable fate. He jumped when Golgothar reappeared, but he was no longer afraid. He was beyond despair, relieved that it was time to go, time to get it over with. 
He sat up unsteadily, his head whirling. Golgothar stood with his arms folded across his chest, his hair brushing the ceiling. "'Well, I see you have prepared yourself,' he smirked. "'I am sorry to disappoint you.' Ronav looked up at him with droopy eyes. "'Huh? You can go to sleep now.' "'What? What are you talking about?' Golgothar was clearly tickled by his own tactics. "'He doesn't want you.' I told him your whole sordid tale about this girl, Kier, and your reasons for withholding the information from him. He was extremely fascinated by the part about her vanishing act, but didn't much care about the rest of it. He said that was all he needed to know, and returned to his meditation as peacefully as ever. So you're off the hook, Ronav. Ronav continued to stare, slack-jawed at Lord Dregor's lieutenant. Golgothar gently pried the bottle from his hand and set it on the side-table— with the end of a finger, he tipped Ronav over onto the bed. The stunned man's eyes were still open as Golgothar said, "'Sweet dreams!' and, carrying some floral fragrance with him, exited the same mysterious way he always did. At the end of the next day, Ronav was lying peacefully on his bedroll in their camp a half-day's ride north of his headquarters. He could not believe his good fortune." Somehow he had managed to avoid another encounter with Dregor, and he was certain it had had something to do with the way he had explained it all so eloquently to Golgothar. His other worry was solved, too, that of who should be his right-hand man now that Con was... Uh, had been... Uh, was gone. The first logical choice was Giles, but Ronav had always been unimpressed with the sword-work of that fellow, though he was loyal and had worked hard for him. But the man who had arrived this morning was perfect— he had been brought in from outside while Ronav, his massive headache relieved by the herbal tea, shouted out orders to his company as they packed to leave. The newcomer had watched with such a high and mighty attitude that Ronav had dared him to accompany them. He went by the name of Hunter. Ronav was satisfied with him by the end of the day. At least he would try him out, on a probationary basis, perhaps until the end of this task. If the stranger succeeded, he would definitely be given the position." His sword-work had been impressive, to say the least, and he had a couple of other things that Khan had lacked—good looks and charm—very useful tools, both of those, especially where a woman was concerned. Ronav was looking forward to a long and happy relationship with his new assistant, and was certain to receive praise from Dregor for his choice. Kiera woke with no sense of how much time had passed. She felt numb throughout— as if it emanated from deep within her and spread outward to the tips of her fingers and toes. She lay on her side, body curled with knees up, one hand by her cheek. Eyes felt heavy, thick. Opening them was like pressing them against her sockets. In her line of vision—blankets, grass, dirt, fire pit, also her own swollen cheek—smells of dirt, wool, and something else, something clean-masking something filthy— no pain, no nothing. Memories of a nightmare stirred, but blue sky and morning bird songs seemed to dissipate any association of badness. Shuffling and whispers drifted into her attention. "'You saw how it was,' a voice said in a subdued tone. It was vaguely familiar. "'She was immobile. She couldn't crawl, let alone walk any distance. No horse.' There was a murmured response, but she couldn't make out words. The whispering went on, and Kier felt urgency, close to panic, in the timber. 
And where are we? I don't even know where we are, so how could she? I'm telling you there's something wicked at play. The other voice responded again. In contrast to the first speaker, it sounded like warm water with calm and relief. Then soft footfalls approached, and a shadow knelt down beside her. A hand warmed her forehead, and she tilted her head to see who it belonged to. A serious expression through caring blue eyes below pale hair. He half smiled at her. Kier? She was sure this was the source of the calm murmurings. Are you in there? It came to her then. Derry. Her voice was hoarse and dry, and it hurt a little to speak. Picking up on her cue, he brought a cup to her lips and cradled her head to help her take a sip. It was warm and soothing, tasting of berries and spices. I don't want to pressure you. Are you ready to talk about it? What did he mean? Talk about it? About what? His face fell, and a glimmer of alarm flashed through his limpid eyes and was gone again. Let me know, that's all. He moved out of her line of sight. She continued to stare at her blankets and the ground in the fire pit until a short time later a tingling sensation came over her back, changing rapidly into stinging. When she was small, Kier had burned her fingers in the steam from the tea kettle. This was akin to that experience, with the difference that it was not localized to a small area. Her neck, shoulders, all the way down her back to her bottom, sizzled like hot oil. Her body ached in places that had never ached before. She gritted her teeth, but soon had to call out, Derry, whatever you gave me ran out. The vague, cloudy memories of what she had gone through yesterday sharpened from nightmarish shadows into vivid, unobstructed reality. The places that didn't sting throbbed. She closed her eyes and exhaled deeply. <sighs> Derry knelt behind her with his kit. I need to check things over, and then I'll decide what to do next, all right? Kier sucked in air and flexed her fingers and toes. Just make it go away. She braced herself as Derry uncovered the scene and made his assessment. He worked silently, and Kier sensed a hesitancy. It would do no good to pretend she didn't understand it. I had forgotten, she whispered, but I remember now. He said nothing, but the silence was full of expectation. She heard the pop of a jar lid. She winced as he dabbed on salve. Sorry, my hands are a bit cold. <laughs> Kier laughed cheerlessly. I don't think your hands being cold is something I could ever complain about. His chuckle sounded both sheepish and relieved. I guess you've been through much worse discomfort. Discomfort doesn't begin to cover it. She sensed that he was digging for more. Look, if it's all the same to you, I'd rather not talk about it, okay? Shuffling sounds told her the others had gathered around. Well, all right, but all you need to know is I didn't tell them anything. And Khan is dead. Should she perform the wine ritual? She didn't even know if she was responsible for Khan's death. Fennel's feet and legs blocked her view of the fire pit. He crouched low. Hey, Kier, he said gently, apologetically even. Who was he? What happened to him? She fingered the medallion and saw again, even with open eyes, the sparks and fire. It turned out she was ready to speak about it. In a faltering voice, she tried to describe it, his corpse still in human shape, blacker than coal, shards of fire and electricity trailing throughout it like dying embers, 
the jet of lightning that spewed out of the gem on her medallion, a mere trinket in a previous life, Khan's weight pressing against her body, suddenly hurtling into the air and coming to a dead stop fifteen feet away, the nauseating odor of burning flesh, and the low chuckle of Ronav, swelling, building on itself until it grew to a fever pitch, piercing her like a shaft of ice. If they'd given me a sword, I could have... She shook her head. Even he didn't deserve to die like that. She decided against the ritual. Jeskelin asked if he could examine the medallion. She held up the chain so he could scrutinize the device without touching it. He shook his head. I have never seen anything like it. It could be an energy cell. What happened then? His voice sounded curious but seemed to be hiding something. Who sent you here? Um, sent me? The mage prodded. Yes. How did you get here? I, well, I don't know. I remember a door. She closed her eyes and tried to remember. A door, yes. Jeskelin, Derry said. Wait, the mage said. It was, well, it seemed like a door. It wasn't there, and then it was, made of, I don't know, light, pale light, small, shimmery, faint, hardly there at all, really. And, the mage insisted, his tone was startlingly similar to that of Ronav Malachite, the renewed memory of whom brought bile into her throat and made her quiver uncontrollably. She craned her neck around to glare at the mage. Garen's fire, Jeskelin. Next time you're lying on the stone floor, surrounded by filthy enemies, bleeding, beaten, flogged, nearly mutilated, with the body of your captor smoldering before you, and something resembling a doorway appears next to you, you tell me what you would do. I fucking well crawled through it. The flames licking the wood in the fire was the only sound within the shocked silence. Kier shut her eyes so she didn't have to see Fennel gawking at her. After a moment, Derry said, I'm sure there's a logical... I don't care how she got here, Fennel piped up, only that she's back. Jeskelin grunted. Makes sense considering it was your fault they took her. Kier's eyes snapped open. What the bloody hell do you mean by that? Fennel, his face crimson and voice tight, told her about the man with the scarred face who'd spoken to him in shale. His appearance put me off, but I... He seemed so friendly. Kier listened to the elf's story and felt her eyes welling up. She reached out and took his hand. Fennel, don't be troubled. You've punished yourself for this, I can tell. And maybe you helped him along. But Con had been after me for two weeks. It was only a matter of time. Fennel gestured with his arm. But they did all this. Not your fault, she insisted. Forget it. It's over. Con is dead, and that's that. Derry, finished with his treatments, covered her with blankets. You're a generous person, Kier, more so than others. He squeezed her shoulder and moved away. Kier realized then that one voice had been missing from the entire exchange. She raised her head and looked around. When her gaze rested on Janik, his head wrapped up like a bloody name-day present, another memory returned to her. The ogre. At their surprised faces, she added, My new friends told me about their secret weapon. 
Janik's good eye stared at her for a moment. She read some deep emotion in it, but couldn't tell what it was. He turned away, and she was glad of it. Derry stitched the cuts on Kier's face and some on her back. He trimmed off threads of skin that were unlikely to reattach, applied his medicated salve, and bound the wounds. Finally, he gave her a healing potion to speed her recovery. He then left with Janik on the half-day ride to Stony Hill so the dwarf could be examined by a healer. Even as physiker adept, there were limits to Derry's abilities. A healer had other powers that Derry did not have at his disposal. A light rain fell as Kier lay on her bed, feeling useless and restless, watching Fennel care for Trigg as well as Laot. She was not sorry to see the dwarf go. He'd been surly and silent, and when their eyes connected, albeit unintentionally, his good eye pierced her like Derry's needle from within all his bushy hair. She could not read him, but felt the sting of his gaze, as if he'd spoken aloud his hatred for her. Plus, the worry that had taken root while Giles's strong arm held her had germinated— the worry that she was not of value to the group, that Janik's wounds were too pressing for them to bother with her, and the fear that if the mystifying door hadn't appeared and somehow brought her here, she would still be a prisoner of Ronav Malachite. The drizzle continued all that day. Kier dozed off and woke up to dim light and a drop of moisture on her cheek. At first she thought it was night already, but then she realized she was in a sort of tunnel. Several pieces of equipment, a saddle and saddlebags, were piled in a row next to her. It wasn't a tunnel. Someone had erected a makeshift tent by resting a blanket on top of the pile and extending it down to the ground next to her. It had been there long enough to become saturated with rainwater, and she could see another drop of water gather and grow. It dropped on her face, and she wriggled out of her blankets to peek out of the tent. It was the first time she'd made any significant movements, and she was as stiff as if she were petrified wood. Fennel sat huddled in his cloak next to a tiny fire. A small animal pelt was stretched over the fire and secured to three sticks a couple of feet up, barely protecting the fire from the mizzle. Thanks, Kier said. Fennel looked up and grinned at her. It was the least I could do. Sleep well? Fine, Kier grunted just a little as she struggled her way out. "'Can I—' Fennel began. "'No, thanks.' She stung and ached, but much less severely. In her progress, she knocked against one of the rocks that held her shelter on the ground, and it fell inwards. "'Hungry?' Fennel asked. Kier fetched her own cloak, slowly, slowly, from her saddlebag, and joined Fennel at the fire, seating herself, slowly, slowly. She sat so the cloak rested on her shoulders, but did not cling to the bandages on her back— the stinging made her wince, and she pressed her lips together. Fennel handed her a cup. "'It's the tea Derry had me make for you. It's for the pain,' he said. "'I made it a while ago, so it's probably cold, but I wanted to be sure it was ready when you woke up.' She nodded, and its cool temperature allowed her to drink it quickly. "'With any luck it'll start to work faster.' Fennel handed her the piece of meat he had just finished roasting. "'Fox,' he said. "'It's not bad, and his skin is helping keep our fire going so we can cook him. He's a pretty obliging creature all round.' Kier took one bite and instantly recalled how long it had been since she'd eaten porridge the morning she was taken. Two days ago? Three? This was the first time she wasn't turned off at the thought of food. No wonder she felt faint. "'This is fantastic.' "'Glad you think so. I've had better myself. Squirrel is quite tasty, actually.' 
Raccoon is kind of tough if you don't cook it slowly, but it tastes good, too. Groundhog, opossum, I've eaten most everything. Anything'll do if there's nothing else around. I thought you were a vegetarian, Kier asked. He grinned sidelong at her. Anything'll do if there's nothing else around. A companionable silence followed while she ate, and he skewered another hunk of fox meat. He tossed some sticks onto the fire, which smoked in protest at their dampness. Where's Deskellen? We've been taking turns all day hunting for wood and food. See, we didn't ever intend to stop here so long. Sorry. He smiled sardonically. I'm the one that's sorry. Fennel, no, really. When I saw what they did to you, regardless of my stupidity and shale, we should have protected you better. His pitch rose even as her self-worth descended. We should have been on the lookout all the time. What kind of company are we that doesn't look out for each other? Everyone's so busy competing, looking for ways to find fault with each other. Instead... Jaskelin padded into view, and Kier noticed that not only had the rain stopped, but darkness was drifting over their camp as swiftly as the smoke was rising. "'I imagined it would be different, that's all,' Fennel finished, looking up at the mage and the scant sticks and leaves he'd gathered. Kier guessed it was not a topic Fennel had broached with Jaskelin. The elf handed her another piece of meat, and she brooded. All this time she had thought she didn't need protecting, and it had used to be true— but she was no longer in her hometown contending with schoolyard altercations. Not even six weeks since leaving her humble farming village, and she was living her dream working as a warrior for her greatest hero. It was real. Life would not be easy from now on. Six weeks in the real world, and she'd already garnered some true enemies. She glanced at Fennel. And maybe true friends? Yes, Fennel, she thought. I, too, imagined it would be different. That brings chapter 13 to a close. Next week, our friends arrive in the village of Nenya. In other news, I am happy to report that two weeks after our little wedding, no one had developed any symptoms of COVID-19. So, yay! We socially distanced successfully, and we are very proud of ourselves. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. As always, David and Sharon. Big cheers to the original six. Hope you're listening. So that's it for me this week. Saying, please respect other people's boundaries. And, have you watched Norsemen on Netflix yet? If not, you should. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much for listening. Now go be fantastic.